Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. We're on the Compliance Podcast Network and you can hear a lot of different fantastic podcasts as well, all over CPN. Um, today, I'm speaking with Lloydette by Marrow, and she is the founder and principal consultant of Parametric Global Consulting. It's a white-collar crime investigations consultancy, and she's based in the UK. Just as a side note, Lloydette was somebody who was referred to me by my friend, dear friend and mentor, Ellen Hunt, followed up a couple minutes later by some by Gwen Romack, who is also a dear friend and another mentor to me. So it's always wonderful to get hear such great things and meet fabulous people within the pot, the compliance community and to have Laidat join our group of great women. Um, so thank you so much. Um, before you, she started at Parametric, she was a principal investigative lawyer with the UK government serious fraud office and a prosecutor um, with various UK governmental agencies. I was really excited to talk to you, Laidat, about how you've taken that government experience to build your consultancy with a global reach and just talk about investigative work. So with that, let's start with your background, Lodat, and, and tell us about you. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on the Great Women in Compliance podcast. I'm really delighted to be here. And yeah, absolutely shout out to Ellen and Gwen for, for connecting us up. Um, I'm really discovering how amazing and generous this compliance community is. Um, so, a bit about myself. As you've already said, um, I am a former government prosecutor. Um, I worked at a number of government departments, so the Crown Prosecution Service, which is, I guess, your sort of state prosecutor uh, in the US, um, and then went on to work for the Serious Fraud Office and was the case lawyer for the second ever deferred prosecution agreement entered into by the SFO. And it was a case that I was the lawyer for um, from, in essence, from cradle to grave, especially in relation to the DPA, um, so from self-report all the way to the conclusion of the DPA and uh, then on to the trial of the individuals, and that was the point at which I left the SFO. Um, I now, obviously, in 2017, I started my own consulting practice. It was a huge leap of faith, but it was one that I've never, ever regretted, and I haven't looked back. Um, and I thoroughly enjoy what I do now, which is helping my clients that are both multinational corporations like, um, and large private companies um, with internal investigations that they uh, are dealing with, advising them on issues in relation to deferred prosecution agreements and providing strategic insight and training for them and their, and their teams. So let's ask a little bit about the beginning and um, of starting your consultancy and some of the things, the barriers, opportunities. Um, talk a little bit about being a woman and starting a business, um, you know, particularly I, I don't know as much about within the UK. So can you just talk a little bit about your personal experience? Um, I come from quite an entrepreneurial family um, and I've seen my mum basically both hold down a full-time job 
but also she had this amazing side hustle. And I have a sister who's a very successful businesswoman. Um, and so I think even though I'm a woman in the UK starting a business, I have this, and my father is also in business. I have this background of seeing um, both women in my family as well as my dad thrive and succeed in their businesses. Um, and I remember when I first started considering transitioning from my job at the SFO to the, to, you know, private practice, I spoke to my mom, my dad, my siblings, obviously my, my husband, and, you know, got so much encouragement from them about this decision to step out. I think as women, one of, as a woman in the UK starting a business, one of, I think the major, um, obstacles that you face, I think actually as women across the world, to be honest with you, is this, um, the way that you think that you're not good enough, that you are, um, you're not, you're not going to be able to do what it is that you set out to do. Um, and so that was a huge thing for me because when I first started my business, you know, I had an idea of what I wanted to achieve. Um, and then doubt, self doubt creeps in and you constantly have to battle against that and keep your eyes on the, on and focus on what it is you believe you've been called to do and how you're going to go about achieving that. Yeah, it's funny. For me, one of the things, I mean, I even remember this, especially from law school um, and the, the guy who carried in the U.S., the U.S. Constitution in a pocket size in his pocket. And I was like, these people all know so much more than I do. Yeah. They're so confident. And it was particularly men, um, some women, too. And then I realized, you know, I don't know if that's actually the case or do they just you know, speak out loud more and more you know, authoritatively. That did not. That took me many years. But sometimes I'm thinking, well, wait. Sometimes they're just talking so people think they know what they're talking about. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think it's about putting yourself out there and putting yourself in those situations that make you uncomfortable. But in those situations that you're uncomfortable in, that's the opportunity for growth. And, you know, when people say to me, oh, my gosh, you have this amazing CV. I remember at the beginning, I think you said, really? Gosh, I don't feel like it. Um, And again, it's this, this process in your head that you almost have to get over yourself. And recognize that if you're going to do what it is you're supposed to do, and if you set out to do this, then for goodness sake, do it. You know, go ahead and do it and give it your 110%. I think because sometimes we can be so scared of failing. I'm, I, I never realized I was a perfectionist until I set out in business. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then you question yourself so often. Um, and you think, well, what if I, if I, if I do this, what if it doesn't work? Well, if it doesn't work, you would have learned an incredible life lesson from that. You'd have learned to be a better businesswoman. You'd have learned how to navigate that challenge when it comes around again and you keep it moving. Yeah. I mean, I, I often, I say this too, sometimes to people when they're so worried or me too, about what, what I'm doing for work. And I think I might make a mistake. I will make a mistake. But like you said, what's the consequence? And fortunately for me, and maybe not for everybody who's listening, I mean, I'm not in the, my mistakes are not risking people's like lives, you know, touch wood. I mean, but, you know, it sounded like I'm, if I do something wrong, it's not like I'm doing major brain surgery right now. It's important work. I take it very seriously, but you can fix mistakes. It's just a question of recognizing them, I think, sometimes, and accepting that this is what happens. And yes, being a perfectionist 
I'm trying to be a recovering one. Some days I work better <laughs> than others. <laughs> yes, me too. I think this is the year that I, I, I went into recovery mode. And I think, you know what, if I want to say something, I'm just going to say it. Um, and obviously considered it, but I'm going to say it. If I want to write an article about something, I'm going to write that article. And if, you know, 500 people read it, great. If five people read it, great. But the, the point of it is, is to get out of my comfort zone, to do the things that I want to do and to do it even if I'm afraid and yeah. recognize and actually that in doing that, there is so much richness that comes from people's feedback, but also from you being able to say to yourself, I did this, you know, and I've been on my, in my business now, I've been running my business for four years, almost four years next month. Um, and I have worked harder, Lisa, in my business in the last four years than ever in my entire life. It is, it's, it's the hardest I've ever worked and it's nonstop because when you run your own business, um, you never switch off. Right. You never get to take a day off, even though you should for self-care purposes. Um, it can be very difficult to compartmentalize your life and say, well, okay, that's the end of work and this is the, the start of, of everything else. And so in this process of the last four years, you're learning how to almost recalibrate yourself, working much harder than ever before, but also recognizing the need for a healthy work-life balance. Yeah, that actually is a really great segue to a little bit of talking about what services that Parametric provides um, and sort of the niche that, that you have in, in, that you built and what you've grown in there, you know, because you've got a great prosecutor government background and then you're helping with those specific situations, um, but also, you know, kind of figuring you know, out where your niche is and how that falls. What, can, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what you were looking for and where you see your services fitting. I just think it's a really interesting area. This was a process when I first started off. Um, absolutely. I can tell you a bit about that. When I first started off, um, I had a, an idea of what I wanted to do, but I think as lawyers, sometimes what one of the most difficult things that you can come across when you leave the traditional confines of the profession is really being able to articulate your value and being able to see where you fit outside of the traditional confines of the profession. And I was sharing with a few people that, you know, when I first started out, you know, I'd say to people, I'm a lawyer. And they go, okay, that's great. Okay, so what do you actually do then? What, what, what can you do for me? Uh, or, or what is it that you offer? What are your services? What value do you bring to the table? And I would say to you that that process probably took me about a year to really articulate that in a way that I was convinced of it, but also that I could share that with other people. And I think my prosecutorial background gives me a really interesting insight into some of the challenges that organizations face. Um, because I've been on the upside of looking at those challenges and making decisions about whether or not to investigate on whether or not to prosecute a corporate on the basis of, of something that's happened within the organization. And also I think part of what I do is really around working with organizations to make sure that they don't continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, that we can break almost the cycle of sort of, you know, um, crises that occur because I don't see my role just as an investigator. You go in, you, you, you investigate on behalf of a company, you, you conduct that investigation, which I can do. 
and then you go away. Actually, I think part of the work that we need to do and, and that I do with some of my clients is really around how do we ensure that the organization changes in a way that means it can move on in a healthy way. And I think sometimes we look at investigations as too much of a short-term process with quick results rather than looking at the longer-term systemic issues that also need to be addressed. So I, I, I fit in that, in that area, I think. And what's interesting about this here that um, I wanted to flip about and talk a little bit about is you worked with the U.S. multinational corporation. What you were talking about a minute ago is bringing your prosecutorial experience in to a different sort of set of circumstances. So I wanted to kind of flip over to when you started working, particularly as this independent outside counsel role, and you worked with a U.S. co-counsel and bringing your former prosecutor experience um, versus being the in-house experience. You know, having been a law firm person myself and then in-house, there are some differences and contrasts. Um, so I thought you could talk about a little bit about both your interview approach, what you kept, what you thought you might change, and about those as you went through yeah. this process? Yes, yeah, so I, we were really delighted actually to be working with um, a large multinational corporation based in Texas. And um, my co-investigation counsel um, is an absolutely amazing person who has a wealth of experience um, as a former chief compliance officer in a number of large organizations. Uh, and so when we um, approach this investigation. You know, I was coming from it very much from a, still as a prosecutor's mindset. I don't think you you can get rid of your prosecutorial instincts that easily. Um, and I remember we were preparing for the interviews and I looked at the text of the interviews. Um, so we'd written some blurbs about what we were going to say. And I read it at first and I thought, my gosh, this is so, um, not necessarily, I guess the word I'd use, not nice. But it was so, um, there was no, what I thought at the time was, you know, it needed some oomph. There was no, none of that was there. And I, and I remember saying to him, so, you know, maybe we should ask this question and maybe we should ask this, or do you think that we can um, proceed in this way? And I, he, you know, we had a discussion and that discussion was really around the approach that needs to be taken when you're dealing with corporates. Um, and I think, one of the things that I learned from that process in terms of how he approached the interview versus how I approached it is number one, proceeding from the basis that you have to realize that the investigation may turn out to be nothing. There may be nothing there at the end of the day. Those allegations still have to be substantiated. But those individuals, they have to keep working in those organizations. And so you as investigation counsel have to take a, a, an approach which I think is um, extremely carefully considered, but also, um, you know, you, you're, you're not going to be confrontational about it. You're going to elicit the facts, but do that in a way that means that if your investigation uh, uh, doesn't identify any wrongdoing, that those people who can continue to work in those in organizations and that the relationships aren't irreparably damaged. So uh, and it, it's a contrast to my previous experience as a government lawyer, not necessarily that we were confrontational, but we were certainly much more forthright in terms of how we asked the questions, how we followed up, and, and what we were expecting to get out of those interviews. So the same clarity is there, but I think the approach was a, a much more measured um, approach than I was used to. 
Yeah, I also think from a prosecutorial standpoint, it's extremely, and also sometimes from a, a different kind of outside counsel role, you are looking for particular answers and you have particular objectives in, in interviewing and in speaking with people. And sometimes yeah. the other concern in-house or different approaches is what other things, you know, what other rocks do we need to turn over? What, you know, you, you have, it's, it, you know, it's not necessarily all about, you know, figuring out getting enough evidence for, you know, a prosecution or to be successful, but it is, you know, we have to figure out all the problems and, you know, turn, and this is why I wanted to mention this now, coming back to, you know, coming up with long-term systemic solutions, that's as much as figuring out, you know, what happened. Obviously there are certain people, you know, that may have done more wrongdoing or things you have to handle differently, but I thought it's just an interesting, you know, lesson. And now a couple of years out, how has that impacted you any any more, or you know, is it kind of evolving, or where does that come out for you? I think it's kind of evolving still, to be honest with you, because I I really learned a lot from from his approach, and I and I still continue to learn every day because I think when you are in the private sector, absolutely, you do have to think about you're modifying your approach to ensure that you can meet the objectives that you set yourself, but also meet the needs of those who are your clients. Um, but, you know, I would call myself a, you know, I'm a litigator and I'm a prosecutor in and out. Um, and so I think that there is a need for rigor. I think you can be uh, rigorous in your questioning, but I'm learning how to, to, to measure that in such a way um, that you keep in consideration all those other factors that may be at play. Because when you're prosecuting, you don't necessarily have, you know, all of those other factors that you have to consider when you're with a corporate. You just don't. You know, your job is to uh, investigate this matter, follow all the relevant lines of inquiry, uh, and decide on whether or not you have sufficient evidence to charge. Yeah. It's, it's a much more straightforward dynamic in many ways, and that's not to oversimplify it than when it is when you're operating within the corporate environment. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the challenge, I think, sometimes and where people like you are so helpful in it is that, that, that bridge between helping people make ethical decisions and doing the right things under ethics and compliance and realizing there are real consequences when you don't. And there are times where we, even within organizations, you know, you, you understand people have to work at places again, but that doesn't give them the ability to you know, just destroy a lot of other issues because they're so concerned about whatever their particular objective is. So, it, you know, a sale is not more important necessarily than not following laws for a period of time that could then take you to the SFO or, or any other, you know, governmental organization. Absolutely. Because, and, that, and that's a great point, Lisa, because at the end of the day, when you look at it, you know, independent counsel, when you have to get independent counsel involved in the matter, that means things are pretty serious. Um, and that comes at, you know, a great cost to the organization in terms of resources. Um, and so, you know, whilst, of course, we have to be cognizant and, and mindful of relationships, absolutely, you, you, you individuals have, have, you know, done things which have you know, damaged reputations of organizations. And, you know, we can't, as independent investigators, there is, I think, a level of rigor that you can bring to the investigation. Um, and also, I think that when, when you bring in outside counsel, people realize, okay, this is really serious. This is now another level. Um, and this is and a person who is independent. They don't have an ax to grind. They don't know me. 
but they will follow the facts wherever it leads them. Right. And and they're not necessarily thinking about the bottom line of an organization the same way you yeah. might if you're there. You're you're here for a purpose. And that's the thing, you know, that, that people need to realize for all of us, you know, if ethics and compliance gets involved, if other things have come to a level that obviously have enough concerns. So let's try to deal with the problems. Um, and I think that's one of the things. One last yeah. thing. I go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, especially when you talk about, you know, this thing about following, you know, being concerned about the bottom line. Of course, a corporate has, every corporate has resource challenges and we're all, you know, thinking about, you know, all organizations consider those things. But I think as corporate investigators, when we, we take on new clients or, we, or we're engaged and instructed to act on behalf of a client, I think one of the things that we're always mindful of is in relation to the scope of that investigation and making sure that the organization understands what the implications are in terms of the scope of the, of, of the investigation not being so restricted as, as a result of budget that you can't actually achieve anything. And it becomes simply just a cover for legitimacy when really you haven't been able to do the job that you have been tasked to do. And there are times when, you know, I, you know I'm an advocate for saying, well, it, if your scope is so narrow um, that you can't reasonably do the tasks that you're instructed to do, then you have to think about whether or not that's something you want to actually be engaged in. Absolutely. And, you know, if people aren't willing to look at what the risks are down the line or do, you know, this is something that falls back into organizations. And I will say one thing about my organization is the, the talk about doing the right thing is, is very frequent and from all different levels. And it, it's something that I, I feel very grateful for having seen different things in my life. But, you know, the, the thing to also look at from that perspective is, you, know, we, you want to be a positive reputation company. You want to get to those end results because the, the Band-Aid just doesn't always, doesn't work. There are some times where it can, but once you have independent outside people or a you know, very serious issue, you're, you're past fixing a problem. I mean, you have to get a little deeper in it, you know, putting, you know, a, sub, a substance, you know, there, there are some real issues to address. And like, like we were talking about individual mistakes, organizations make mistakes, you know, mm. employees do, but the question is fixing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, the Band-Aid at some point is not going to work anymore. It's not going to work anymore. So you've got to find a way of tackling those issues and looking at them in the round rather than just uh, looking at it in silo. Oftentimes we look at, well, this is the problem that we're facing now. So let's deal with that and let's just close the box. And now that we've talked a whole bunch about moving into um, organizations and different things you've seen, one of the other things that I just think is just so interesting about your background is that you have taken your prosecutorial roots and, you know, used those in many different ways, including working with, um, I guess it's now the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office um, in the UK. It used to be, I think, Department for International Development. And what you yes. do is you're training and helping investigators in Sierra Leone. Can you talk about you know, what the what what you see there, the impact, and what you've been doing, because I, I think it's just fascinating. So, um, the work that I was doing in Sierra Leone, that I continue to do in Sierra Leone, is um, work that I've been involved in now for about almost four years, and I absolutely. Um, love the work that I do. I am the anti-corruption lead for a program which is called um, the Rule of Law Expertise Program. And again, as you said, it's, it's a program that's sponsored and supported by um, FCDO. Um, the reason why I got involved in that was because I, 
I wanted to find a way of using my skills to contribute um, to Sierra Leone's development. I am Sierra Leonean by birth and uh, as well as nationality. I have joined a dual nationality. I'm British Sierra Leonean. Um, and uh, I really wanted the opportunity to be able to use my skills to help specific uh, specific uh, organizations. And the Anti-Corruption Commission um, was one of those that was a natural fit. And so what we've been doing out in Sierra Leone is that we work within the auspices of something called the UK Sierra Leone Pro Bono Network. And we design and deliver training. We offer um, mentoring, peer-to-peer -peer support for both investigators as well as lawyers working within the anti-corruption division. But our work actually is a bit broader than that. We also work with the judiciary. So we have a, a very good relationship with the chief justice. Um, and was we were I was instrumental in working with the Chief Justice to develop an anti-corruption division of the High Court. Um, and the work that we do, we can actually see the difference because what we've done is that we've led teams to go to Sierra Leone. So teams including judges, senior police officers, forensic accountants, just to help those investigators and lawyers um, with getting up to date with the most current and best practice, giving them some insight into how we do things in our jurisdiction, not necessarily saying that how we do things in, in the UK is perfect, but giving them some other alternatives and showing them different ways in which they can work that can make their, their investigations more effective and make their prosecutions uh, likely to succeed. And um, we've developed a wonderful relationship with the Anti-Corruption Commission um, uh, over two commissioners now. Um, and we continue to work with them in terms of continued capacity building. And you talked also, it's, how has it impacted both the, you talked about the building and developing the anti-corruption division and the relationships, but it really has had an impact on the country too, hasn't it? You're, Yes, it has, because our current anti-corruption, the current anti-corruption commissioner of the um, the commission is a, an absolute, uh, is an absolute, um, absolutely determined to make things work. Um, and what we've seen is actually that the uh, prosecutions have been, we've seen a, an increase in prosecutions by the anti-corruption commission. We've seen more successful uh, convictions. Uh, we've seen um, just the prosecution the investigation practices being just that much better than they were before. Uh, we continue to keep in touch with both the commissioner as well as the chief legal officer and the chief investigator. And so we're actually seeing the difference that it's making. And I think what we're seeing with the Anti-Corruption Commission is that actually the narrative around the Anti-Corruption Commission being an organization that didn't have any teeth is changing. Um, and the Anti-Corruption Commissioner um, was actually uh, awarded an, uh, 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 an award by the the U.S. government, I think only a few months ago, as being one of their anti-corruption champions, which is an incredible recognition of the work that has been done in Sierra Leone by the commission. That's amazing. That is really just so exciting. Um, you know, Mary was talking in a recent podcast about all the the, the that we don't always think of ourselves as cool in ethics and compliance, but I have to say this is super cool. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a very technical term. Um, but I think with that, I just wanted to close with one question for you, because we've kind of talked a lot about that. You know, talked even how how you your roots are in, in Sierra Leone um, and talking about coming full circle a bit. But 
you were going to look back at four years ago um, when you started your company, what do you wish you knew about the day you started the company that you know today? And that can't include COVID because I feel like we all wish we knew COVID. <laughs> yeah, COVID is certainly not the one. Um, I think one of the things that I would say I wish I knew when I first started is it goes to the theme that we were talking about at the beginning, which is do it afraid. Do it afraid. Step out of your comfort zone at the earliest opportunity. And I think continue to understand that feedback isn't a negative thing. Because again, you know, when you talk about that perfectionist thing, you think, I've got 99% of the people saying this was great, but you're thinking only about the 1% of the people who said that was not that good. So accept feedback and continue to grow. Don't let that stop you. So it, it all ties in. Do it afraid, step out, and don't be afraid of feedback. Whenever I get feedback these days, I think of it as an opportunity to grow and I think of it as an opportunity to refine myself so that I can be even more excellent at all the things that I do. Well, thank you for being excellent at all the things you're already doing and for spending some time with us today. Um, thank you for having the, me. Yeah, on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network and also our Corporate Compliance Insights. Um, and thank you just for really joining and, and learning. And I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You have a great day too, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.